0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello, and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Dug, here on RN. We're going to be talking education a little bit later, Uh, remembering that Jason Clare, the Minister's uh, comment, the educational divide between rich and poor, between city and country, ricochets through generations. So we'll be focusing on just how equity uh, is divided in Australia's schools at the moment in terms of teaching and resources, and also the local heroes of the northern rivers after the flood crisis. But first to our first edition of a foreign affair for 2023 to walk the road of peace sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict tommy said mr president you're wrong now that takes a
1: lot of guts i'm for peace and quiet mr loot it's why i came to the un quiet diplomacy
0: This month on Foreign Affair, we're talking about spy balloons, the hysteria and ever-rising rhetoric. uh, Certainly evokes Cold War memories for me. Our excellent panel will share their views shortly. Then the scene being set in Myanmar for what many fear will be violent elections as the military regime tries to exploit elections in its favour. We'll examine... Japan's shift away from pacifism, an ethos it's been tethered to for decades, and how development aid, particularly for the Indo-Pacific, is the new priority for Canberra, and how it just may be newly influential within certain circles too. So please do welcome to A Foreign Affair, Sam Roggeveen, Director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program. Amanda Hodge is the Australian Southeast Asia Correspondent based in Jakarta, and Bridie Rice, who's CEO of the Development Intelligence Lab. Hello to you. All.
2: Hello, Geraldine. Hello, Geraldine.
0: Let's talk first about the uh, giant Chinese blimp uh, floating in the room. It has dominated US media and political discussion. Pieces of the downed balloon pulled from the sea off the Carolina coast. Proof the Pentagon says China's
3: weather balloon claim is nothing but hot air. Your A Chinese foreign ministry spokesman says, I have no knowledge about America's
0: claim that this balloon is part of a fleet. I think it could be part of the information and public opinion war that the U.S. is waging against China. The international community can see clearly who's the world's largest espionage and surveillance
2: country. I can assure you this was not for civilian purposes. That that is, we are 100 percent clear about that.
0: Now, Sam, it's been about two weeks since um, the balloons entered uh, the picture and um, entered American airspace, and quite a few others have been down, but uh, subsequently but all pretty harmless, it would seem. Uh, and China's response has shifted quite a lot, um, initially uh, pretty conciliatory and then a bit indignant, and I don't know what you'd think of it it is right now. Where do you see this headed?
2: it's a, it's an inconvenience but i think the media and uh social media coverage of this is probably sorry the puns come so easily i was going to say blown it out of proportion <laughs> um so it, it, blinken had to postpone his trip uh to beijing and i think that was understandable because it became such a big media story. I mean, we now have, you know, late night talk show hosts in uh, uh, in the U.S. even making it grist for their uh, comedy routines. Um, the Republicans would have uh, raked Blinken over the coals for uh, mm. being soft on China had he gone. Uh, but my instinct at the time, and it's not really changed, is that this is this is just a delay for. Uh, uh, for the sake of, of waiting for that for the, for that dust to settle and then um and then they'll find an opportunity for uh, for blinker to go again and for um for the relationship to to hopefully find a uh a new level. I must say
0: key, absolutely key, it would seem to me, uh, was what routine avenues for talk exist. Um, I mean, that's one of the main takeaways from the Cold War. That stopped the Cold War from becoming a hot war, one could argue, at several occasions. And, and, you know, you just think what exists now between the US and China that they can just happily turn to, to make sure that it it doesn't, you know, when the media does go hysterical, um, that it doesn't escalate and become something, quotes, inevitable occurs.
2: Yeah, there are mechanisms like that. So there is a hotline between the two militaries, but my understanding is that they don't quite function as they're supposed to, and the phone doesn't always get picked up when it rings. I think another aspect to your observation there, Geraldine, is that... The sheer novelty of a uh, of a balloon being at the centre of uh, of this controversy probably changed things as well, because the the international practices are so um, unfamiliar and un unpracticed uh, when it comes to these uh, kind of intelligence gathering devices. We're more used to fixed wing aircraft mm. um, flying along the coastline, for instance, and in fact, the US and China do have protocols for how. Uh, they behave when uh, American surveillance aircraft come up along the coast and they get intercepted by Chinese aircraft. Uh, They do have protocols established for some years now for that. Um, Balloons are just a new thing. So I I guess, I mean, it's a very old technology, of course, but it it was fairly novel to see something like this happen. So that's also another reason why perhaps this was blown in a proportion and maybe we will see it being slightly less... uh, uh, distortionary in future instances. Well, we'll
0: yeah, we'll see. Uh, what about drones, by the way? Are there sort of real protocols
2: around drones uh, between the big, the big powers? I'm not aware of them. I, I mean, there was uh, an incident of an American uh, drone getting shot down over Iran, I believe it was in 2011, which was a, a pretty big story at the time. And there are Unofficial reports has never been confirmed by the Americans that they have an even more advanced drone, drone program, which, uh, you know, can overfly even the airspace of of really advanced countries, uh, military uh, adversaries such as China or Russia. So um, it's yet to be properly tested. But in a sense, it it kind of lowers the stakes. Drones lower the stakes because there's no human on board. So you don't get a repeat of uh, like the the Gary Powers incident. Yes. uh, during the Cold War. And, and, and I guess that's true of the balloons as well.
0: See, the, uh, I noticed that uh, President Biden said nothing suggests that the three later objects downed by fighter jets over Canada and the US were Chinese spy balloons and were likely tied to private companies or research institutions. Mm. He says he has no regrets about downing another Chinese balloon off South Carolina and does not intend to apologise to China's President Xi. But um it seems to have moved on. I suppose the key thing is when Blinken gets invited again and when he chooses
2: to take it up. Um, right, yes, I agree. Um, and, you know, both sides will have learned some lessons here. I, I think the interesting thing here is what China hoped to gain and the the risks that it evidently was prepared to take in order to, you know, win some intelligence gains. Mm-hmm. Um, you could draw the conclusion that... Um, China took a took a really big gamble here because it thought the intelligence value was so high. Or I think, to me, the more persuasive view is that actually this was a decision made down the line somewhere and it wasn't subject to political oversight or, or at least not as much political oversight uh, as necessary to determine whether any intelligence gains uh, from a mission like this were going to balance out the, uh, the, the clear uh, PR um, damage that China has suffered.
0: So yes, I wonder... <laughs> I wonder where that person is now. I suspect you're right. Um, Look, just to be a bit silly, to quickly wrap it up, at least the White House has helped us clear up one thing you'd have to agree. It's poured cold water on extraterrestrial involvement.
4: There is no indication of aliens or terrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. wanted to make sure that the American people knew that, all of you knew that, uh, and it was important for us to say that from here because we've been hearing a lot about it. Um, I, I, I'm not.
2: Will you tell us? <laughs> I'm just, you
4: know, I loved E.T., the movie, but I'm, I'm just going to leave it there.
0: <laughs> that was White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre. Well, let's look at a struggle much closer to home. Uh, Amanda, you've written a very powerful piece about how the military junta in Myanmar is moving towards holding elections to legitimise their regime. How dangerous would you judge this situation to be, given the opposition that is now really ranged against them?
1: Yeah. Um, Myanmar is kind of what um, what we might talk of as a forgotten war, isn't it? I mean, it's been completely overshadowed by Ukraine. It is mostly contained within its border, though obviously um, refugees are spilling out all the time. Um, and the, the junta is two years into its, well, um, attempted coup because it hasn't got control of the country. It was supposed to end its state of emergency on February the 1st which, 1st, which was the second anniversary of the coup, which ousted the civilian government of Aung San Suu Kyi. It wasn't able to do that. And the reason for that is that it had to admit quite. Remarkably, that it didn't have control of at least one third of the country. So what it was going to do, it was going to end the state of emergency on February the first, and then it was going to install a you know a sort of proxy caretaker government, which would have been all of the generals taking their uniforms off and putting on suits, and then within six months it would have held elections. That's not going to happen by August this year because of the the state of insecurity in the country. The opposition, the armed opposition now to the junta, is much more organised than it was even six months ago. You know, there's something like 200 people's defence forces, and then you know levels under that of sort of like dad's army, militias, etc. And they're all work, or a lot of them are working with sympathetic armed ethnic organisations that have been fighting the state for autonomy for many decades. So we have this sort of broiling um, situation inside the country now, not just on the border regions with India and China, which, as you can imagine, is upsetting to those, you know, two large Asian powers, but in in the centre of the country, which has always been loyal to the military in the past and very much a Buddhist, you know, enclave within the country. So any attempt to to stage elections in that environment is going to be so bloody, um, you know, and Mm. I think so costly to the Junta that even they had to admit that they needed to do more to establish their control of the country before they hold elections. What that means, um, you know, what more they can do, we don't know because they're already, um, they've already switched to an air war with these sort of indiscriminate strikes, not just on what they think are legitimate targets, but, I mean, everyone is a legitimate target to this junta. They've demonstrated quite um, amply that they don't discriminate between armed fighters and civilians. And the tragedy, as you outlined it, is also
0: that there was so much private and NGO investment and capacity building happening and about to happen in Myanmar prior to the takeover, especially green energy projects.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's an, oh God, I, you know, if you think too much about it, it you just crumple because it's mm. such a tragedy. And, um, you know, Sean Turnell, who, who is the Australian economist who was released in November last year after 21 months in custody in the, me and my junta's custody talks about this, you know, the sort of collapse of the economy, the unraveling of 10 years of reform. Um, and there were, you know, there were companies ready to invest, hundreds of millions of dollars in, you know, um, hydro electricity, in, in solar electricity and all sorts of things. That isn't happening because nobody's paying their bills in Myanmar. One of the um, ways that people who, who don't feel they can take up arms or who don't want to, you know, directly confront the soldiers or the military. One of the ways that they are able to protest is by simply not paying the state. Mm. So there is no money coming into the electricity sector. So no investors want to invest in Myanmar. And as you will have seen, you know the Myanmar activist community is incredibly um, busy unmasking any companies or countries that continue to invest in this illegitimate. Regime. So destroyed a state in order it. to rebuild it. <laughs> exactly. Mm. And, and yet again, I might add, because it's happened before. Bridie, any thoughts? Because this is very much your bailiwick.
4: Yeah, Amanda makes a really good point here. I mean, prior to the coup, Myanmar had a really complex set of transitions going on. I mean, it was a, a nation that was switching from military to democratic rule, from a closed to an open market from conflict to peace, and it was already a really, really complex development landscape. And of course, you fast forward to now, and those extreme pressures on the basics of health and, and education and, and basic food secure insecurity have just increased. So the question for Australia as we watch this tragedy unfold is really also about where are we best placed to support? And what we've seen is a real caution and care and worry amongst the Australian development community and government. Um, and the real crisis is how do you get help to save the lives of hundreds and thousands and millions of people who are in jeopardy right now, but at the same time, make sure that that very assistance isn't mm. propping up a regime? So coming into an election perhaps late next year, this year, thereafter, and with all that we're predicting, I think this is a space that Australia is going to have to watch very carefully and be ready to respond rapidly to.
0: Yes, I agree. Uh, And look, I just want to head uh, to Indonesia briefly to point out a very important meeting, I think, Amanda Hodge, of um, NU uh, Ulam Ulama in Surabaya last week. Now, this is one of the largest Islamic organisations in the world and some of its leadership are urging Muslims to consider the importance of the nation-state over a caliphate. So this is very interesting. And the importance of the United Nations in Islamic law. It's really a critical look at what they say are problematic aspects of Islam. Islamic jurisprudence, and they're seeing it as a way of countering extre- extremism. Oh, I think this has been rather underreported. Can I just read from an NU statement? It is neither feasible nor desirable to re-establish a universal caliphate that would unite Muslims throughout the world in opposition to non-Muslims. And that's very interesting language, Amanda. How, how influential mm. do you, well, how influential is NU in Indonesia? Would this be seriously debated there?
1: Enu is very influential. In fact, it's the most influential Muslim group in in the country, and one. and I think it's the largest Islamic group in the world. It is mostly moderate, um, but it's very factionalised, extremely factionalised. And the faction that is talking about this um, is headed by Yahya Chalil Stakuf, who who's a very thoughtful Islamic leader. Um, whether it's debated. Look I didn't see much reporting of this myself. I found, I find it incredibly interesting. but the thing that I think works in um, this group's favour in in posing this argument is essentially what they're trying to do is thread the needle of Panchasilla and Islam. Now pa- Panchasilla is the underlying foundation of the unitary Republic of constitution which upholds the nation state of, of Indonesia. Yes, and this is in constant um, in constant kind of battle with those more orthodox or or conservative uh, Muslims who believe that Indonesia should be an Islamic state, and that was a battle that that occurred during the writing of the 1945 Constitution, and those who who believe it should have been an Islamic state believe they were cheated by Sukarno, and that that has been a thread throughout. Mm. Indonesia's modern history or the, the the history of the Indonesian modern state. So it's no surprise that um, President Joko Widodo should have been happy to speak at this rally after It was the 100th um, anniversary, wasn't it, of Enu? Exactly. Mm. It, it, it has the state on side because it's trying to, you know, tie Panchasilla and Islam together. But it it also has a, uh, a history, Enu, of raising these, you know, quite – cutting edge views of Islam. And that's quite fascinating because I always feel like in some ways Indonesian Islam has a little bit of a a cringe in some sense. It always feels Versus like the Arabist look, Islam. Yeah. It mm. always feels like it needs to look to the sort of custodians of the two holy mosques, right? The the Saudis, etc. the Wahhabis, that they're somehow purer followers of the faith than they are because of their, you know, syncretic mm-hmm. Islam here. But they're getting a this I think is a is an indication. Of their growing confidence. And that can only be a good thing for international Islam, I think. I couldn't agree more.
0: Um, Now, um, we're going to um, move beyond those specifics to um, Australian aid and development assistance, which of course is very important in Indonesia. But there seems to be a bit of a, a fundamental shift in how Australia thinks of itself helping our region. Bridie, this is your specialty. Can you bring us up to speed, please?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So last week, the Minister for International Development, Pat Conroy, had a bit of a, a cheeky ad lib on a podcast. And what he said, which was a very Canberra in joke, was that really AusAid, Australia's aid and development old agency that we decommissioned about a decade ago, really needed to take over our foreign affairs. Department. <laughs> yes, I saw that. I was very naughty. Absolutely. And I mean, you should have seen the ripples that sent through the department here in Canberra. There are a few noses out of joint. Um, But what he also went on to say was actually development uh, really needed to be seen on the same footing, given the same prominence as diplomacy in our country and i guess on the one hand um this is you know shock horror um we are a country that i think has probably left development out in the cold it's a poor little cousin of our blue blood foreign policy community for quite a while now um but on the other hand for those of us who've worked in development over the last little while it's an absolute no brainer it's common sense um development you know conversations now, about jobs and and specifically
0: and, if you wouldn't mind how might that um, how might that happen say in the pacific
4: yeah, so what you're currently seeing is Australia's basically rewriting the rulebook on development. We've got our ministers um taking seriously their relationships in the Pacific. They're visiting a lot more often. We're seeing an increased amount of money spent through our aid budget into the Pacific. But I reckon more excitingly, what we're actually seeing is Australia starting to think of ourselves as a country connected to the Pacific and to the broader Indo-Pacific as well. So things like labour mobility.
0: And yeah, haven't we just announced effectively a green card um, between the Pacific and us that uh, people can apply for a green card for, for, for ease of movement?
4: Yeah, that's all right. I think that there's still a lot of work to be done before we quite get there. But absolutely, our government is actually saying, you know what, development isn't just about an aid project anymore. That's just one piece of the pie. We're looking to connect our markets. We're looking to connect our labour. We're looking to rethink our visa system so that we can have more integration with countries in the region and that is how we're going to be a good development partner.
0: It's a ballot, isn't it, for a new Pacific engagement visa which will allow up to 3,000 nationals of uh, Pacific Island countries and Timor-Leste to migrate to Australia as permanent residents each year. That's that's really what I'm talking about.
4: That's right.
1: Yeah, and visas are this, are this sort of ongoing irritant between australia and our neighbourhood it's the what you know you hear people and governments complain about it all the time that there's no ease of you know movement no labour mobility the lack of short term work visas which would be good for you know the southeast asian labour force and great for australia which which is lacking you know labour mm-hmm. at the moment and it's you know until they get sort of that sorted we're not going to have the sort of trade relationship we really want. Mm.
0: Okay. Well, yes. You were going to say something, Sam?
2: Look, Geraldine, just to be the, the stick in the mud here, I, I don't think Pat Conroy is right, actually. I, I don't think that the two things, uh, aid and development on the one hand and diplomacy on the other, belong on the same level. I, I do think aid is a, it is, is a subset of our diplomacy, um in a, in a very sort of abstract and old-fashioned way when 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 a foreign nation decides that it wants something from Australia, something that we are not prepared to give away, then they have two choices. they can either fight us for it or they can negotiate with us. Now thankfully, overwhelmingly they choose negotiation rather than fighting. But when you think of it that way, you know diplomacy is essentially a, a, a civilized proxy for, for conflict in international affairs and that that really is the that really is at the core of what our diplomacy is. And um, uh, aid and development is one tool in that in that tool chest. Oh, right. But
4: Sam, <laughs> Sam, don't you think that, um, you know, going back in time, the idea of development came out of the Marshall Plan. When countries get interested in development, it's an absolute indicator that we're coming to a global tipping point. I mean, when our ministers go into the region and have discussions with their ministerial counterparts, they're talking about jobs, about health, about visa access. Development, I think, is actually becoming the language of diplomacy in our near neighbourhood. It's not the only language, um, but it is certainly not just an instrument. It could actually be the way we engage in influence and increase our power in the
1: region. Yes. Sometimes, yes. Diplomacy, all of that. sometimes diplomacy provides cover for our aid and development, though. I know, like here in Indonesia, there are programs that the Indonesian government might not particularly embrace like um, you know development or or programs for you know gender equality or LGBT and we couldn't do these things without the diplomatic cover that that's provided
4: Hmm. absolutely I think Amanda Indonesia is a great example of where those tools stand side by side in in the bilateral relationship for sure
0: well we were i mean that's what we were talking about in the earlier part of of the program is that the role of diplomacy in Ethiopia in that extraordinary i mean that's where you absolutely see the need for for uh, diplomacy to 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 come front and center um it's a good argument to <laughs> to be involved in and i want to move finally to Japan and i remember that the heve Lemahue from the from the lowe looking at their power index talked about the crucial role that japan was now playing in its diplomatic corps very very successful uh, now there are some historic shifts underway there late last year japan announced a doubling of the defense budget over the next 5 years and the acquisition of weapons to counter the perceived threat from china so sam you know w- what is happening yeah.
2: Right, yes. Yeah. So I think earlier on when you mentioned this, you, you may have talked about Japan overturning its its historic, at least since World War II, aversion to uh, mm. offensive capabilities. Yes, you, you, we are starting to see that happen. So the, the fact that defence spending is doubling is, of course, a dramatic gesture in and of itself. Uh, but, but even within that, we're seeing plans to acquire what are traditionally seen as offensive weapons. So cruise missiles, for instance, that can strike the Chinese mainland. So Japan is now ordering cruise missiles that can strike Chinese territory, which is a significant uh, shift for Japan, which has had a very defensive mindset and force structure. Remember, Mm. in in official terms, Japan doesn't actually have a military. It has what it calls a self-defense force. Uh, now, in in practice, it's a distinction with only a vague difference. But um, so far, Japan has stopped short of um, of developing, uh, you know, purely offensive uh, weapons capabilities, and it's starting to do that now.
0: I think it's even got some small aircraft carriers. You were telling me earlier, is that right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. It it started. Um, actually refurbishing one of its um, amphibious ships and turn it into a mini aircraft carrier.
0: So is this uh, continuing the legacy that the late Shinzo Abe made before he was assassinated last year? Is this what um, Prime Minister Kishida is doing sort of quietly, is it?
2: Yeah, Not I think quietly. that's a reasonable thats a reasonable conclusion, yeah. Look, I mean, a doubling of defence spending, you wouldn't call that quiet. Um, but it should be said, you know, that, that these things always... Imp- always come with capacity constraint concerns. So uh, it's all very well to double the budget, but do you know how to spend it? Uh, Do you have the personnel available to actually use all that kit? And uh, so, yeah, it it comes with all sorts of uh, caveats, I think.
0: Do we know how the public is taking this? Because this has been a long... I can't tell you how many times I've reported on this over the years with great uh, bewilderment, shall we say, even dismay among the public when people raise this. Now, is a thing shifting?
2: I can't speak to that very much, Geraldine. I would only say that, you know, these are not dramatic steps when you can put it in the context of what uh, China has achieved over the last 30 years in terms of its military modernisation process. Mm -hmm. So Japan is really only beginning to respond to something that has been evident for several decades now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because also um, the um, Marcos, the head of the Philippines, uh, President Marcos, he's in Japan and uh, there's a growing relationship between the Philippines and Japan. And of course, Marcos is really reconfiguring the Philippines too, to be much more in the US camp. And he's allowing the US to uh, access to a whole lot of um, uh, Philippines bases that are quite close to Taiwan. Is this something that you're aware of, um, Amanda, that there's a a sense from Australia anyway, that uh, Marcos (laughs) is really quite shifting things?
1: Yeah, and it's a surprising shift, too, because uh, there was a lot of talk during the Philippines election and just afterwards that Marcos, you know, uh, his family having been sort of spurned by America in some way over the um, kleptocracy of his father might not look too kindly on America. But in fact... He has shifted, um, at least in a defence sense, back towards their historical ally, which is the US. And that's, that's sort of in keeping with the trends of the region. Um, I think what happened in, in the Taiwan Strait last August really shook the Philippines because it's right in the line of fire there. It's very close to the, you know, to the Taiwan... Which is to, after to, okay. Nancy Pelosi's visit, we had all the Chinese uh, aircraft
0: buzzing, right. buzzing and, the, the island. Right,
1: they surrounded mm-hmm. Taiwan. Taiwan and and, uh, conducted their three days of live fire drills. I think that that shook the Philippines and and really made them understand that they were very vulnerable, and that um, this sort of um, game they were trying to play of balancing China and US against each other on defence wasn't going to work. China, as the Lowy Institute survey has shown in recent weeks, is definitely the main trading partner for all Southeast Asian nations, but they all rely on America for their security and you know for balancing the power in, mm. in the region. And um, we're seeing a lot more of these, you know, defence pacts between uh, in a trilateral sense and also in a bilateral sense to try and shore up the security of the region. And while no one's saying it's to balance out Chinese power, that is actually what it's trying to do. Yes. I might let you have the final word, Bridie, because... Um, Japan's quite interesting
0: the way it uses its international development or aid agreements, isn't it, to build relationships. This is all part of their really very successful, as I understand it, uh, insinuation of themselves into a whole lot of areas where once they would have been on the back foot.
4: Yeah, that's right. Japan is sort of regarded as the the quiet achiever of the, the aid and development front. They've got a really sophisticated financing capability, so they're looking at financing various parts of infrastructure and in parts of Southeast Asia and the Pacific in particular, they're really well regarded as a great partner. I think the Japanese foreign ministries have done a lot of hard work um, with their diplomats and their development experts there um, and they're listening acutely to what the region needs and just quietly going about that work, responding. And I wouldn't mind betting that Australia could take a lesson or two um, from the Japanese playbook when it comes to things like development finance but also perhaps reducing some of the paternalism that I think sometimes we're a bit too well-known for in
0: the region. Mm, how interesting. Okay, look, thank you all very much indeed. That was a little quick tiptoe through the tulips of a lot that's happening as we kick off the year. Sam Roggeveen, Amanda Hodge and Bridie Bryce, thank you very much. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Jeremy. And we're going to shift the focus now back to Australia and talk next about why academic achievement is stagnating in our schools. <music> There really is a lot happening in the education space at the moment, which is responsible, you could argue, for the health of Australia's egalitarianism. A lot about equality and inequality starts right here in our school systems. Just glance at the important Productivity Commission report in January. Many of you may have missed it, but essentially it argued that the huge amounts of Gonski funding plunged into our systems to improve student performance had not really achieved its goals. So if money isn't the panacea to lifting children's performance, what is? Generally, the answer is teaching quality, but how to get their best... The Education Minister, Jason Clare, has virtually invited a year-long debate among us about how to best spend the $72 billion worth of combined federal and state money. We've been heeding that. Last month, we covered some new teaching emphases, uh, for instance, in the Canberra-Goulburn Catholic Schools. Here's another perspective from Professor Janet Clinton. She leads a research hub into teacher effectiveness at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Um, Thank you. It's great to be here. So all that hype about money, uh, hoping to really achieve uh, big changes, has it really not succeeded? Look, I think there are really two important things to consider
3: when you think about the Gonski funding. I absolutely agree it hasn't succeeded, but why hasn't it succeeded? We would probably argue that the Gonski um, recommendations have not been fully implemented. In our independent system, there's much more implementation, but it's not happened in the public
0: sector. And why is, why not?
3: I would suggest that the previous government got caught up with other disruptions. So they started implementing, they had some different views, and they chose, I would assume, the independent sector first to fix that. And, and then, of course, we've got bushfires, we've got COVID. But from an education perspective, we've got a great budget in this company in relation to education, but money's not enough. You just can't throw money at stuff and assume that it will have this massive effect on achievement. There's enough research to suggest that building great buildings doesn't necessarily make the difference. You need great
0: teachers. Yeah, well, I'm going to come to that. But I mean, one of the biggest concerns that is revealed in this study is that the gap between students whose parents didn't finish school and those whose parents had a bachelor's degree really widens over the course of their schooling life. In year three, there's just over one year of learning difference between children whose parents have a degree and those who didn't finish high school. By year nine, Janet, it's nearly four years.
3: Absolutely. And and if you imagine that the, we've stalled in terms of the implementation of the recommendations right back to Gonski, that gap is going to... Greater and greater, and I think we've seen this during big disruption through COVID. Those kids that were really vulnerable, that that vulnerability has become much greater, and then the probability of moving them out of that vulnerable group mm. has got less and less.
0: And is that where um, you're saying teaching, the quality of teaching and teachers? You know, as you say, it's not just about money or buildings. That's where you think this really kicks in.
3: Oh, absolutely. Because we're not getting that one year's progress for every child, regardless of where they are, then the the vulnerable kids just get more and more vulnerable.
0: You know, a lot of listeners might be thinking, I thought this was what school was de- was designed to circuit break that actually we could rely on our school systems to cut through some of that established disadvantage. And, and we know it does work. It's, is it working less well of late? I'm, I'm a bit of a Pollyanna. I don't I don't believe it's working less well.
3: There are issues across our country with such diverse contexts. So in some places, it's not working as well as we would want. But, you, you know, you've got to look at Australia. We are fabulous teachers. Now, there is no doubt that in some circumstances everybody's not getting that equal amount and ensure that our teachers understand the context that they're in and what they need to be providing.
0: So that they can work for all of those kids. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, there's that um, quality teaching review that was uh, uh, released last year and that looked at early teacher training and how prepared new teachers are for their jobs. And one of its key recommendations, Janet, was ensuring that teacher's preparation for classes was evidence-based and practical. And we did talk about this on a program a couple of weeks back. <laughs> what do you say the evidence is saying about the best way to teach? Is it more this... Um, explicit teaching methods or more student led? Uh, honestly,
3: I'd go for a balanced view. If <laughs> I'm horrified that somebody would say uh, to the teacher of my grandchildren, just do ins- explicit instruction. If my seven year old granddaughter was struggling with her vocab and her reading, I would expect they would use explicit instruction because that's what she needs at the time. But if you used it all the way, then what you're going to get is a group of kids will just become uh, having surface-based knowledge. They can't apply the skills in a more problem-solving
0: manner than it's it's not going to help future functionalities. this uh, equivocation <laughs> might not help the very kids that we're talking about of course maybe the the planners and the teachers and uh, the researchers all need to be on a bit of a the same page and <gasps> and Isn't say look it's 60, 67% has to work you know let's just make a decision so i
3: would argue that all teachers need to understand explicit instruction and know when to use it. And they all need to know how to teach the ideas, problem solving, and, um, you know, that discovery based learning. They also need to know how to develop a learner disposition. So that's,
0: that's a number of different skills. What kind of teaching is getting the best results overseas? If you go to Shanghai, of course, it's going to be more explicit, more descriptive,
3: and they're going to do well on PISA and TIMS. We always go to Finland, for example. Well, teachers have more autonomy in terms of strategies, but they, they don't focus on the strategies. They focus on the teacher differentiating what the child needs. If we go to Singapore, they have this amazing uh, teacher evaluation, teaching evaluation system that the teachers want because it tells the teachers what's working. So, you know, getting the teachers engaged in having enough resources so that they can choose varying strategies and apply them in the right time is the way to do
0: it. There's another way of looking at this too. People like Chris Bonner have been writing about this, which is to look at the the systems rather than the individuals, which is a little bit of what you're doing. And mm. he's particularly been writing, and I'm sure you've seen it, about mm. Australia increasingly aggregating strugglers in disadvantaged schools, um, so making it harder for formerly you know pe- high profile schools that are sort of creamed off that their best go to say. Mm small privates or the uh, the higher end uh, public system. And they just simply cannot maintain their um, academic success. And there's a great line he's got here. A child's peer group affects their identity, their post-school aspirations, their motivation can learn, to learn. It can also have a powerful effect on the curriculum, both in terms of subjects offered by a school and how lessons are pitched. It becomes harder to engender a shared sense of the value of education. Such a scenario is hardly improved when resources, including teachers, are in short supply. Now, that's that's decisions beyond individual teachers, isn't it, or their methods?
3: Mm -hmm. There's a couple of things that I think that's missing from from what Chris emphasises. You know, it is the the student in that space. And you would imagine whether it's independent, faith-based, public, that all schools, regardless, would enable student motivation and, and enable that learner disposition, the confidence, capability and capacity to choose the path that they want. The problem we've got is focusing on, you know, this prescriptive curriculum. I think when you get to that point uh, and you, you start really you know, making teachers have greater workload, saying you've got to do more, you've got to do this, then we get into the situation we're in now, where if you you look at the, you know, the reasons why teachers want to leave or don't want to go into teaching as a profession, it's about the pressure that they're being put under. And think about the last five years. Our teachers have been bashed by, you know, blaming them for everything. So our profession our expertise as teachers is not revered. It is in Singapore like it is in Finland. So why would you become a teacher? And why would you become a teacher in the public system when apparently in some sources, they're, they're not considered to be
0: essential frontline staff? No, but but, but but even you said at the start of this interview, it's a, the teaching quality is what is going to determine things and improve student outcomes. So, I mean, you cast a verdict then. I, I absolutely agree.
3: It is about the the teaching, I would argue, and the teacher. I do you think
0: we have incredible amounts of expertise within our own system. Look, can I just do a quick final? Education is state-based, as we know, even though the Commonwealth now provides so much money. Who is faring the best and the worst? I know you won't want to be specific, but I'd really like to hear your judgment. I'm going to go Victoria
3: is probably doing incredibly well at the moment, given, look at the NAPLAN results, so for example, the leading um, leading teachers, learning specialists, it provides that great pathway. Everybody might say, yes, but you're a Victorian, you're biased. New South Wales are doing some really interesting things. I have my eye on what's happening in South Australia as they move towards really focusing on wellbeing, motivation and engagement. Um, You would probably worry, and we always have, I think, with Northern Territory. But with Northern Territory, what's interesting is they, from an achievement point of view, aren't doing as well as
0: some of the biggest states, but their progress looking good. Okay. It's hard to nail this down, isn't it? It really is. Uh, But I very much thank you for your time today, Janet Clinton. Yeah, you're welcome. Really appreciate it. Janet Clinton, she leads a research hub into teacher effectiveness at the University of Melbourne. And thank you for all your texts on this as well. It preoccupies a lot of us, I think. Well, up next, one year on from floods that devastated northern New South Wales. Yes, this coming week marks one year since absolutely devastating floods ravaged the northern rivers in New South Wales. Who can forget those images? To mark the occasion, local journalist and first-time filmmaker Susanna Framark will showcase her short film Tinny Heroes for the first time. It tells the stories of some brave residents of Woodburn and Broadwater, two towns south of Lismore, who got in their small boats to go and rescue people, stranded on roofs in the floods. Here's a little from 84-year-old resident Robert May.
3: These were volunteers, not SES, volunteers who had taken in their own minds to get in their fishing boats with their outboard motors and rescue people, which they did. And I think they're heroes. I think those people are remarkable. And I owe my life to them.
0: That's Robert May. Now, this film is billed as a short film that's big on bravery. And I'm pleased to welcome to the program Susanna Framark. Hello there. Good morning,
1: Geraldine.
0: Look, this short film of yours is quite something. Congratulations. Tell us about 84-year-old Robert May, whom we just heard in the intro. He contacted you early on in the piece after the floods, didn't he, through your local news website?
5: Yes, he's the man who is really responsible for the film. He contacted me and asked me, could I do a story looking for the two blokes that saved him? Because it was dark, he didn't know them, and he had no idea how to find them. So I did a story saying we were looking for these people in the tinny and we found them, which was fantastic.
0: (laughs) Marvellous. And... um in getting the project like this off the ground, I mean, I know how difficult it is to get films off the ground. And you were a print journalist effectively,
5: weren't you? Yes, I work in words. So I think um, it was a naivety, really, because I went, I was did the story of Derek and Marcus, who rescued Robert. And then I talked to other tinny heroes. None of them, by the way, thought they were heroes. They all said, I don't want the spotlight on me. I did what anyone else would do, but I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people didn't do that, and the ones that did I think was a truly heroic act, so I have I have no problem singing their praises. And because I'd done stories, it just didn't feel like enough because of what the area had been through. You know, I was out in Corakai, all the towns, seeing the devastation. I mean, it's the worst disaster I've ever covered in my journalistic career. And it just didn't feel enough. Like I wanted something more visceral. I wanted people to know how big this flood was and, and what this community did, because it was essentially a very Australian story. Uh, blokes and women getting in their tinnies. And I decided in my naivety, I thought, I'm going to make a film not knowing at all what was involved, and uh, in some ways that's a saving grace, not knowing what's involved. And I asked the Walkley Foundation from their Meta Facebook fund if I could have some money to make the film, and they said yes. So I found uh, Jimmy Malecki, Uh, he's the director of photography, and he shot the footage. Where did you find him? Well he's I've known him for years just through you know journalistic circles and he was at Bungawulben and he himself was flooded in and stranded for days. Bungawulben was particularly cut off for or oh, at least a week if not longer after the floods had abated. So we got to making a film and it's been quite a journey. It's taken us 7 to 8 months and have I'm you, rather have you emotional aged? now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I think so. I just feel very emotional even talking about it. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful story.
0: Uh, is most of the footage crowdsourced from iPhones? I mean, how did you get yes. your hands on it?
5: well i have with my new site i have a facebook page and i have to say the the readers on there are incredibly helpful so i went on there several times and said has anybody got footage i'm making this film and i just got inundated with footage and stills from the floods and of course my focus because i don't cover lismore was all those small towns mm. so there's loads of contributed footage And it was hard getting footage of the actual night because in Woodburn particularly, the flood water was really fast and very dangerous. So, of course, most of the footage is of the the morning after. And people were really happy to contribute that and it really gives it, a. I hope, a a very real feel. So my main job was interviewing people to tell the story amongst that footage.
0: Well, let's hear a little more of the people who did put themselves in harm's way to rescue others. Here's a little of Derek Stratton and Marcus Smith-Woodburn.
2: Seven o'clock, I reckon the power went out and everything went dark, didn't it? You know, after watching a few caravans roll down the the street, didn't they? They floated down, into, nearly ran into houses next door. And and then we just methodically started just hitting houses on the south side of Woodburn. and, And there were just, as soon as we started in the boat, shining lights onto houses, all of a sudden people just started coming out everywhere, just yelling out and waving torches and sort of, yeah, wanting to be picked up. We just we only had, you know, that small boat and an old motor and enough room for a certain amount of people and we had to just do it very slowly.
0: It's a, rescuing people at night really quite dangerous. There is another a quite remarkable interview you have with the farmer Danny Lickus from Riley's Hill who was called to try to get someone out of their roof who was trapped inside.
2: I was yelling out to him, and he told me that the power had shorted out, so it was safe to drive the tinny onto the roof. And so we drove up onto the skew of the roof, and um, yeah, I just said, "Kick the roof, mate," so I know where you are. So he's kicked at the roof. I could see the roof moving where he was. So I said, "Right, I grab the dog, stand a metre or two back. I've got a meat cleaver here. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna bring it down and see what happens. I'm trying to try and cut you out, mate." Gosh,
0: brings tears to your eyes, that doesn't it, Danny Lickers from Riley's Hill. Tell us a little more about this story. Poor Danny's meat cleaver was all he could find. I use. know,
5: Dan- Danny is a bit of a star because he is so authentic and he was quite emotional when talking about his cattle and we he talked a lot about the mental health of men. And I love how open he is, um, which is really nice to see. He's 41 years old, but really open. And I think that's important for other people who are still suffering from the trauma of the flood to see that. Well, I was at a group meeting and said, Does anyone know of any Tenny Heroes? I'm asking all the time over the months. And Tony Carusi, who lives opposite on the other side of the river, said, Oh, you've got to go do Danny's story. So I contact Danny. He like all the others, he was very reluctant to tell his story because he said, Oh, I was just one of many. And I was like, Look, I need I need you to tell your story. So he agreed. We sat in his house, which is really high up. Um, at Riley's Hill, and he showed where the water had come into the top floor. And he had this meat cleaver and he went and just hacked the roof. <laughs> and um, fortunately for, for us, with him telling that story, which as you can hear from his voice, he's very, um, he's a, very real, a real bloke about it. It's fantastic. And fortunately, ABC had a helicopter up and got footage of the man he rescued laying on his roof with his dog. with the water and so we have bought that footage to put in the film which is great because as Danny tells the story he um we see we see this man and you you still even now when you look at the footage of what everyone supplied but particularly that you you can't believe how high that water got like it was up to their roofs and it's I look at it now and I still go is this real mm. you know it's it's and that's sort of also why I wanted to make it because it's this is a historical film as well for people to go oh look what happened
0: Gosh, uh, I mean, it could be a bit emotional and even challenging, dare I say, for your community to start seeing this from tonight on.
5: Oh, well, like it's, I I knew it was poignant, but I wasn't quite prepared. I should have been, but I wasn't prepared for the overwhelming uh, messages. All of Woodburn's coming to the the official opening on March the 1st but I have organised to have counsellors there for people. Mind you, they are a very tight community and I think they know how to look after each other. People have already said, I'm crying at the trailer. Some people have said, I can't come and see it. It's too traumatic. So, I think people know what Mm. they can handle. Like People who've been affected say to me, oh, when it rains, I'm triggered. So, when it's an anniversary, we saw this after the fires, okay. so many things are a trigger because everybody is so sensitive and that's sort of first year anniversary. Yep. But I think seeing it together is is going to okay. be remarkable. I almost probably cry. Well, I'm <laughs>
0: sure you will. Uh, <laughs> Susanna Framark, congratulations, like huge congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's official launch at the Woodbourne Hall on March the 1st. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Duke. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now.